0: How the Media Economy Drives Political News, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Local news is in decline. Online, nationalized, and more polarized outlets seem to be gaining steam. How do the economics of news production and the actual writers who portray the news affect the political content that Americans see? Newspapers, the bulwarks of news production, aren't keeping up. Freelancer networks and well-off white, urban elite reporters may be making writers even less representative of their readers. This week I talked to Nikki Usher of the University of Illinois about her new Columbia book, News for the Rich White and Blue. She finds that local newspapers are losing staff, with most not able to compete online. But declines are not concentrated in red small towns. Journalism was always concentrated in cities and has long failed to reflect local diversity. But news philanthropy is now concentrating in democratic places like cities and college towns. I also talked to Nick Hagar of Northwestern University about his New Media and Society article with Johannes Wachs and Agnes Horvat. Writer Movements Between News Outlets Reflect Political Polarization in Media. He finds that contributors to media are an insular group overall, but conservative outlets are disconnected to the rest of the media infrastructure. The content of news, including stylistic and substantive differences, matches these contributor networks. Usher looks at the broad changes in the news industry and how they reflect inequalities and political trends.
1: This is one of these books where the title almost sums up the whole argument. So, you know, it's News for the Rich, White, and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. And what I'm really arguing is that a long and prevailing trend of newspaper economics and media economics generally being targeted towards more desirable audiences, right? is just getting worse and worse as the crisis in newspaper journalism accelerates. And so I tend to look at the all of this from a production standpoint. So what happens inside the newsroom that creates these pressures, right? Um, and really what I realized is you can't just operate from inside the newsroom thinking about this stuff, that really the story of what's going on in American journalism is deeply embedded in sort of the story of winners and losers and these winner-take-all cities and growing geographic and social inequality. And so the book tries to really wrestle with what's happening in the U.S. at large, um, trends from big, tra- big tech to sort of this political regionalism, um, to and, and apply that to what's going on in the news industry. So I think that that's kind of like the big framing. Um, And something to really highlight is that news is made for and by people with cultural capital um, who are willing to subscribe, who are largely white. And these newsrooms, especially the institutional newsrooms, remain white institutions. And the blue part is a little bit more complicated because I don't think I would say Um, American newspapers are necessarily liberal institutions, but I would say the people supporting them are because liberals are the only ones that still believe in mainstream American journalism. So that's kind of the the big 30,000 foot view.
0: It was born of an effort to understand news in the Trump era.
1: I am a news ethnographer, which means I go inside newsrooms to kind of try to understand how people work and how they make decisions about what becomes the news. So my first book actually did this on The New York Times. It's called Making News at The New York Times. And my second book did this in sort of a multi-sided approach, um, looking at the rise of data journalism. But I kind of got my start. As a journalist, um, I was a—I'm a very failed cub reporter. My first real job was at the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, and you know, a lot of my career prior to this book was really about thinking about you know the promise and the future, and sort of—I guess it was a little techno utopian. And there was this moment where I realized that these newsrooms, like these really grand, you know, big newsrooms are physically being knocked down because, and it was such a symbol of their diminished influence. And one of those newspapers was the Philadelphia Inquirer. And like, as a cub reporter, I wasn't allowed to go into that building because of union rules. And so I don't know, maybe it just hit me really, really hard. So I think I started thinking really about the physical places of newspaper journalism. Um, and then, kind of prior to the twenty sixteen election, I was driving through upstate New York to get to Cornell, and I, New York is is bluer, not like purple upstate. You know, I mean, you know, they, they're it's it's not a red state place, and I was so surprised to see how much how many Trump signs I was seeing. And I landed in National Airport in D.C. and I saw that the Trump books were outselling the Clinton books on an order of 10 to 1. And I kept trying to tell my friends, many of whom were journalists, that they needed to like really think outside the data that they were getting from polling. And that kind of like, you know, places I wasn't expecting to see such energy around Trump were really showing it. Um, And Lo and behold, I don't wanna say I called it because I think that's obnoxious, but I it really shifted my understanding of the importance of journalism being connected, especially, you know, big national outlets failing to connect to sort of anywhere outside of the concerns of these big cities. And so that really altered the book from being about the places of news physically to the places of news more conceptually, like yes, physical, but also cultural and in terms of power.
0: Hagar's work was also motivated by a look at how news production impacts what we see.
2: I've come to this from a background in attention markets. Um, so anywhere online where people are consuming any kind of content and there is some flow of money based on attention, social media, streaming, obviously news. And there is often, in that kind of research, a focus on distribution and how people are consuming content, and not so much on the production side. And so I wanted to look at this production angle in news, and this worked out great because I had two phenomenal collaborators on this. Agnes Horvat brings this wonderful network's expertise um, and helped design you know our main network analysis, and Johannes Fox did our topic modeling and our language analysis, um, which really tied the content analysis piece of the paper together. So we were able to bring all that together really nicely into this analysis.
0: They found polarization in news contributors, especially on the right.
2: We looked at, in digital news media, a group of people who work for outlets in a freelance capacity and were interested in where are they writing and where are they moving over the course of a period of time. And we found three big things. First of all, there is a huge gulf on the production side of news between mainstream media, so what we think of as sort of major newspapers and also some left-leaning media, and right-leaning media sort of isolated in its own part of the media ecosystem. We also saw that between those two groups, there is a massive difference in the kinds of topics that writers are covering which translates to a difference in the kinds of coverage that news audiences get exposed to. And there is very little crossover between those groups. So the key takeaway is that, you know, we focus a lot in polarization discussions on filter bubbles. What are we reading? What is the algorithm exposing to us? When there is also this really key news production component that is helping to feed into this whole polarized environment.
0: Let's dig into each project, starting with ushers. She says our nostalgia for the local news of old is a bit misplaced.
1: I want to start, Matt, with kind of, I really think that the role of this book is to kind of knock some of the nostalgia out of the arguments that are made by stakeholders who believe that journalism matters. And it does. Journalism matters, right? But, but this idea of local journalism as like the accountability nerve of communities and even cities across the United States is a really sort of like post-1970s even version of big city journalism. And certainly in many sort of smaller areas, areas where you would see even 20,000 circulation newspapers to like 5,000 circulation weeklies, those newspapers have never held the power to account. They've been these booster rags that have enshrined a conservative pro-business establishment and in many cases, both large and small newspapers have been avowed supporters of segregation. I think the story of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, if you dig back to Henry Grady and the New South, I mean, it, it, it there really are some stories of American newspapers being profoundly anti-democratic in many ways. So I really kind of like, you know, we're, I'm talking to a political scientist and I often get a ton of pushback on this, but I think that we need to be really much more intellectually honest about the role that news have served on the ground around enshrining existing power institutions. And that hasn't always been in the service of kind of a more egalitarian representative vision of democracy. So that's like one thing, you know, I start out with kind of a big history chapter. um, And I think that that kind of sets the tone for the book. Usher finds
0: local news declines aren't responsible for the reddening of small town America
1: hear a lot about news deserts and particularly this narrative of local newspapers disappearing in places that are red and growing redder. And it's sort of the implicit kind of, that's not necessarily said by academics, but it's certainly much more explicitly argued by journalists and commentators that when you lose local news, you lose important information and then you vote redder because you don't have, if you had better information, maybe you'd vote Quote, more in your own interest, which is a very paternalistic, frustrating argument that, that I, I really dislike. Um, but there's also sort of like, how do you measure losses in journalism? And I chose to use a slightly different measure, which is um, newspaper employment, uh, which kind of gives you a more granular view because it's where a journalist is actually located gives you a sense of resources because you can have a newspaper, but if only one person's working for it, that's not necessarily going to be a huge supply of original content. So I think there's some some like how do you actually measure what the, where the losses are occurring and how do you tell a kind of more complicated and nuanced story. Um, and so there are a lot of ways to think about this. You can think about counties just as pure counties losing newspaper employment, red or blue, right? Then you can think about, and you can think about it in terms of local populations, right? Or you can think about it in terms of relative to the news industry as a whole. Where are those losses taking place? And that tells you a little bit of a different story because it acknowledges that journalism, particularly newspaper journalism, is weakening everywhere. Where are the shifts um, happening relative to losses in the industry as a whole? And I think that matters I think it's more than just red blue, you know, newspaper open closed kind of way we have to think about. We have to think about it yes relative to population, yes within sort of, you know, what's happening on the ground in terms of political shifts. But we also kind of have to think about what does what where are these losses occurring relative to across the industry, which is struggling, right? So, it's really interesting to see kind of a within-industry measure. And then it, like, matters whether you look at, you know, absolute numbers, <laughs> right? Or or proportional numbers. And I think that, like, When you start to layer on even something like a more dynamic understanding um, or a more subtle understanding of counties, so at Michigan State, there's the American Communities Project, and it clusters American counties into 15 different county types. And so you get a much better sense of, like, what kind of county is this that might be losing news, right? And how does this county, you know, as a big city and an urban suburb, you know, those are kind of pretty similar, but an exurb is different, right? And so, I think that I've tried to provide a little bit more texture. And I think the two kind of big takeaways that are really important first is there are places that have just really not had a lot of local news. And so when we look at places as news deserts, these are places that are kind of what I call historical news deserts. So when you think about the African-American South or um, Native American lands, um, working class country kind of areas, those are places that have really been traditionally underserved for local news. And and the market conditions that we were talking about really kind of explain that, right? So I think it's a misnomer to kind of look at these places that have just had very little journalism and ascribe sort of some, some sort of new sense of crisis, right? Um, I think the second thing is, is when you look at where the shifts are occurring within industry, what I find is that Republican areas actually tend to be a little bit more over-provisioned Relative to places that are blue. And so that kind of disabuses the notion a little bit that Republicans are so distant from the national news organizations and therefore feel disconnected. There's a lot of media distrust and, you know, therefore are, you know, doubling down on their hatred of the news media and, you know, reddening and so forth. So there's something more complicated going on. Um, And I think that. You can't just use partisanship and news as like solo indicators. There has to be something more on the ground because places that have lost news have both grown redder and bluer.
0: Journalists have always been concentrated in New York and D.C.
1: When you look at sort of these concentrations of where journalists are, there tends to be this presumption that like, you know, places are kind of emptying out of their journalism and that's why national journalism has gotten so strong. Maybe that's a partial explanatory effect. Um but when you actually look at the populations of journalists in Washington and D.C., you see that these have always been media capitals, right? Like it's not like D.C. suddenly like woke up in after two thousand and eight and became a media capital, right? And actually, my 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 analysis shows this. I think over the ten year period studied, um, the combined gain across D.C. and New York was like roughly six percent, you know, across both areas, which like is some, but it's not like, you know, you saw a 70% jump in the number of journalists. And so I think it's sort of like, um, what, what is it about both national attention to, you know, politics and national attention to larger political narratives? Um, because it's not just a supply thing, right? It's also a demand thing. And I think that, you know, again, an ethnographer attacking a political scientists. But I do think there's something about like, how are those messages being reified within like a local context? And I think that we don't necessarily have a good sense of that. And so some of my research right now on more rural areas has shown that local radio um, plays a really important role in translating those larger political narratives locally. So I guess the answer really is, it's always more complicated. And that's why we love social science and that's why we do it, right?
0: Congressional journalists continue their hard job of translation between home audiences and politicians.
1: I had a day pass, because I, I'm not a journalist, to basically follow around the press corps for a day inside the Capitol. And I learned so much about like the nature of pack journalism that, you know, it really became clear for me. You know why? Like when you have a a swarm of like thirty journalists chasing you up the stairs, it is no wonder that you say that a senator might say something totally ridiculous about immigration because they're literally being chased up the stairs. Um, So that that point aside, there really is something to the physical presence of. Congressional journalists, particularly um, these Washington, D.C. correspondents who are usually newspaper reporters covering um, a state for a newspaper, quote, back home. And they're kind of like that moment where the Beltway and Heartland intersect in like a corporeal existence, right? If you are covering Alaska, in DC, you are that point where the Beltway and the Heartland intersect. And I think what's really interesting about this is I actually don't think that the coverage that's happening is really all that different. It maybe is ge- more geographically focused, but it's still like win-loss, gain-frame, you know, like maybe it's a little bit less palace intrigue of, you know, um, character stories, Um but what really matters is the physical presence of a journalist from that state asking questions. It like reminds and centers the senator or the congressperson that like their state's there and their state's paying attention to them. And I think that that's maybe the most kind of interesting thing that I found, right? That it's like a journalist is almost like an unelected representative to some degree, and kind of reminds you that like, Lindsey Graham, South Carolina is actually you're actually there to represent South Carolina. So let's let's talk about what's going on in South Carolina. So I think that that was really really kind of an interesting takeaway for me but like the physical presence part of being there i mean i was there for a day doing my field work i do a lot i did a lot of other field work but in terms of actually like being able to tag around with the press i i had a day right and i found myself alone with amy klobuchar and we had a chat about this particular chapter and i like had her undivided attention without her press aids and that's like why there's like a real physical component to, to how journalism happens and why you actually need people there to ask these questions, you know? So I think that that maybe is like the sort of more subtle, you know, you wouldn't hear that necessarily in the chapter, though I do talk about the, the Klobuchar encounter.
0: Usher sees it as a competition problem due to the basic fact that online advertising broke newspaper monopolies with an integrated system.
1: I am a senior fellow with the Open Market Institute Center for Journalism and Liberty, which is funded by Knight. And they're kind of a, essentially an, a comp- competition policy, uh, antitrust think tank. And one of the sort of realizations you have to think about is that local newspapers were monopolies in most cases. And so to some degree, uh, the story of the decline in advertising is a story of chipping away at an inefficient monopoly, right? Because newspapers always thought that they would be in the position of selling audiences to advertisers, even online, right? So there is there is part of that story. And then so Google and Facebook build a better mousetrap. And um, that mousetrap is unfair because it includes every sort of side of the digital advertising kind of supply chain. So it includes the data to target, right? It includes the servers that serve the ads, and it includes sort of the placement and delivery of those ads. So when you own the entire pipeline, right, it isn't, there's no way, there's absolutely no way that a local newspaper or even a digital first publication can really compete because, you know, not only are the ad tech like infrastructure much worse, or Google owned, where Google takes a cut, or Facebook takes a cut, right? But um, there's just they they don't have the data, right? Like if, if news organizations which which do right, if you were able to collect all the cookie data of all the people coming to a local news site and do something with it, right? You might have, and the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, do have a better understanding of how to do this, right? Um, maybe you'd start to get close to like reaching target audiences and, and making a case to advertisers that you can reach particular types of people. But it's just an unfair, it's it's really just unfair, right? And so I think that if we really want to at least start, like provide a starting point or a, a kind of like a fresh of breath air, I don't think it's going to fix everything. But does, you know, better data privacy laws and dismantling the chokehold on every aspect of the digital advertising system. Um through antitrust, I think, is a reasonable kind of uh, policy intervention that I am more comfortable with politically, because I do not love the idea of the IRS deciding what is and is not a newspaper, for instance.
0: PAC philanthropy may even be accelerating the problems.
1: When you think about philanthropy and news philanthropy as kind of a salvo for a broken commercial system, like at least initially, that doesn't seem like such a bad idea. And I think it definitely is one pillar of, of all of these potential solutions. But philanthropy has built into it um perhaps even worse dynamics of elitism and there is something called like pack philanthropy where people find a place that they like investing in or donating to and then everybody else piles on right um so you see some of these dynamics and a lot of the philanthropies are more familiar with cities they're located in cities um They may know some of the journalists individually. Uh, There may be like pre existing relationships. And so when we crunched the numbers for investigative journalism and kind of looked at where geographically the money was flowing, we saw a lot of big city to big city financial flows and big city to college town. And I think some of that may be a clustering effect of um, having uh, public radio and public media in some of those college towns. Um, And so, you know. I couldn't really explain why this might be happening. I just think it was important to substantiate. And there could be a couple of different reasons. It could be that, you know, journalists are in blue places are better tapped into the philanthropic universe because that's where a lot of that philanthropy is clustered and giving in cities. Right. Um, it could be that these journalists have better know-how. Right. Um, and so that could be one explanation, right, that, that the talented journalists who have been laid off from the Chicago Tribune are the ones that go and run the first iteration of ProPublica Illinois, right? So it makes sense. But I think that there is also a real disconnect between the needs on the ground in sort of more non-traditional blue states and more sort of rural areas um, where they're just not as tapped in to the philanthropic circles. And so if you look at some of the more rural oriented news outlets that have been funded by philanthropy, um, the Daily Yonder, uh, Appalachia, uh, 100 Days in Appalachia, those are funded by primarily, at least initially, by regional development grants, like econ grants, like right? um, not You know, it took almost seven tries for 100 days in Appalachia, which is based out of West Virginia University, to get money from Knight. And I think that that tells you a little bit about kind of the political economy of philanthropy.
0: Hagar took a more specific look at online media outlets, analyzing freelance contributors across sources.
2: In our study, we looked at about 6,000 articles written by 300-some contributors, and it is largely freelance journalists. We use the word contributors because we also have people like politicians, academics writing columns for a news outlet, other kinds of writers if you're promoting a book or a novel. Um, But for the most part, it is professional journalists working in a freelance capacity, which is really important because these are the folks who are producing More and more of the news that we read every day, there is an increasing reliance in newsrooms on freelance journalists as more stable, long-term jobs start to disappear from news media. So understanding what freelancers are doing in their careers, where they're writing for over time, gives us a window into an increasingly prevalent part of news media production.
0: The right has a dense network, the left less so
2: there are two interesting network dynamics that emerge. Uh, One, like I alluded to earlier, there is no overlap between these groups at all. We found that you are statistically unlikely to cross over. If you're writing for, say, Fox News and Breitbart, you're not going to jump over to an outlet like the Washington Post and vice versa. And we also see that in terms of the network structure, the right-leaning cluster of outlets is extremely dense. So for the rest of the media, there's sort of these loose connections where some contributors move from Vox to the New York Times to the Guardian, but they're not all completely interconnected in terms of contributor movement. That is almost what we see on the right-leaning side. There's such a dense collection of network connections where you can move almost between all of the outlets at any time. So we see not only the separation, but this really strong core of movement where you are writing for not just one or two, but almost all of these right-leaning outlets.
0: The major news outlets are unattached to the right.
2: Our data suggests there is a more mainstream media and then a more isolated conservative media because we see these connections to very prominent outlets that regardless of whether their reporting or their content has a political leaning, they produce high quality primary source reporting. Places like the New York Times and the Washington Post do this work of producing primary source information that some other outlets are not as focused on. You think of like a digital outlet that's focused on analysis or interpretation. It's a slightly different thing that has more room for political leaning to play a role. And so because of that, because we see that conservative media is so separated from those sources of information, um, I would argue that that is a clear indication of... A mainstream, and then a separate conservative sphere.
0: Hagar says the center-left network is not as explicitly political in language.
2: We definitely do see a connection between contributor relationships and topics. Uh, this is great topic modeling work that Johannes did. Uh, to give an example, there is a huge divergence between these two groups of outlets and what kinds of topics they cover. So for example, left on the center-left, we see topics like science and research, the media, healthcare. On the right there is a much more explicit political focus, you know, topics like just politics in general, specifically prominent democratic politicians, Republican party politics seems to be a much more explicit political focus. And you know, we look at these topics not so much to make a value judgment on which topics the outlets are focusing on, more to point out that the movement, the choices that freelancers make and the structure in which they move has an impact on the kinds of news that audiences ultimately get exposed to, get to read, depending on their choice of news outlets.
0: And the right network is more emotional.
2: The big takeaway from the stylistic differences is that we see right-leaning media, contributors to right-leaning media, tend to use more... Affect specifically more negative emotion in their reporting. And it's important to note that our sample is from 2016, during the 2016 election, a very contentious election, a very polarized time, uh, which might help explain some of that. But there is a clear emotional valence to some of the coverage that we see in our sample.
0: The only ways across the divide are apolitical topics and politicians.
2: We see Cross cutting contributors focusing on topics like sports, family issues, finance, the kinds of topics that, at least on their face, are not as politically charged as what we see covered inside the two clusters. So it seems like if you're going to try and make this jump, you're going to focus on topics that are going to maintain your widespread appeal. Your, intentionally, thoughtfully choosing topics that are not going to close you off from either side. The interesting exception to that, one of the classes of contributors we looked at is politicians. Politicians who are writing columns, writing during their campaigns, uh, trying to get a message out, move relatively freely. They make up about 30% of the cross-cutting contributors that we see. And so our thought there is that Politicians may have a different set of expectations, may have a different almost you know, set of rules about where they can contribute over time than a freelancer would um, because they are such a prominent public figure trying to get a message out. But that is obviously a little different than our idea of an objective journalist moving and giving a different perspective in, say, a right-to-left-leaning outlet. So it's not super encouraging for cross-cutting.
0: News production means readers might not be responsible for polarization in news.
2: Our results suggest that structure is a huge part of this issue. I like to think of it in the same way as climate change, where for a long time we have this focus on individual action like recycling and you know responsible consumption while there is this huge structure of incentives and larger actors pushing us towards a place where that individual action is not necessarily impactful. The same way that in news, we often say, well, you need to get out of your filter bubble, you need to be aware of the political leaning of what you're reading, and you need to consciously Look for a wide range of information sources. I think those are all good practices, but at a structural level, if news production is still catering to the strong political divide, that individual action can only take us so far. And I think, speaking from a US perspective, this is somewhat unique to the constraints of market dynamics because you're right, there is a feedback loop with readers. News outlets have to make enough money to keep. Uh, Producing news. And one way to do that is to give readers what they want to read, which often aligns with their political views. And so part of what we might be seeing here is a distinct lack of, say, a robust public media option that would help to counteract some of those market constraints that might be driving this.
0: And journalist career paths also matter.
2: From an audience perspective, I think it goes back to, again, The market conditions to say, well, if I am a right-leaning outlet, my audience is right-leaning, they don't really want to read something from a left-leaning contributor and vice versa. People don't really want to spend their time with that. And so from an audience perspective, if I'm an editor and I'm looking at pitches, why would I select a pitch that my audience is not going to react to or is going to really hate? Um, And maybe go somewhere else that better aligns with their political perspective. And then from the other side, there's also an interesting individual journalist angle to this, where one way to look at our findings is in terms of pathways through a career. If you're looking at this, you know these are the well-trod paths that are going to work best for you as a freelancer, moving, say, from Vox to the New York Times. It's something that other people have done and you're going to be more likely to do. So if I am a freelancer and I know I want to be a successful journalist and go work at the New York Times eventually, why would I cut myself off from that path by going to write for Breitbart? It just doesn't make sense as an individual. So there are all sorts of incentives that are keeping the structure in place.
0: Usher agrees that interpersonal networks matter and show a class bias as well.
1: A lot of this needs to be sort of explained as as interpersonal dynamics in addition to partisan dynamics, you build a network and that network is reinforcing and mutually reinforcing. Um, I think that if like, so this study included 14 different outlets, um, the national review Breitbart, and I want to say one more that I can't remember, but, um, that's like a really small sample of, of conservative, established, you know, establishment conservative journalism, I bet that you would see significantly a bigger ecosystem. Yes, it would be partisan, but if you included sort of like the Daily Caller and maybe even some of these more like red state, like, so I, I think it's an incomplete picture, but a very important one. Um, I think it's a story of networks. I think that, you know, if you were to look at who the freelancers are, I think that's really important. Um, we can't presume partisanship upon them without knowing. But I guarantee you that anybody that's in the capacity to freelance has something that I think is more concerning in common, uh, which is that they're probably all people who have a financial safety net to put them in the position to freelance. And so that to me, maybe, is more concerning than than what's happening in terms of the partisan dynamics but the face validity of the paper like absolutely you know makes sense to me um, i also think it's easier it's it, it didn't used to be like this like i think even just 10 years ago but it's definitely like you can go back and forth from writing for the nation and writing for the new york times magazine you know in a way that i don't think you could have right or huffington post and you know, the Washington Post, way more than I think you could have even 10 years ago. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but it's a great question.
0: Hagar also sees contributors as part of a political class that reinforces itself.
2: People who enter this media class, who make it to the top tiers of media, tend to be from extremely privileged backgrounds. And if you're not, and you're trying to make it in media, you are likely in a very precarious position, usually as a freelancer, just trying to scrape together work. And if you are in that position and say you have a conservative viewpoint, or you even just are wanting to do, you know, objective fact-based reporting instead of analysis or interpretation, You are not really in a position to make those calls. You're not in a position to push back on an editor who is paying your rent. You're not in a position to uh, try and pitch stories that editors are not going to take from you. You're only in a position to produce what that editors want and what news audiences want until you reach that position of stability. So it's this sort of self-sealing thing where if you are already inside that bubble You really have no reason to look elsewhere. And if you're trying to get in, you have to conform with what the current practices, with the current approaches to producing media online are, or you're risking your career.
0: Nationalized media increases the role of this national political class.
2: On, On one side, the nationalization, I think, ties to The drop in event-centered reporting because it is a lot harder if you're based in new york to give you day-to-day reporting about what's happening say in the midwest and it also to tie this back to nikki's work it also insulates that class of contributors like you're saying even more because you're drawing from such a limited pool um and that limited pool often maybe comes with limited perspectives if you're not getting contributors from all over the country, but maybe just one or two cities. So the erosion of regional and local news um, makes it so those audiences go elsewhere. They go to a digital source that is not necessarily catered directly to them. um, And in turn, the outlets that are the outlets that are publishing news for those audiences are not able to really provide the same level of focused event centered reporting that we saw before.
0: Usher says woke media follows an audience demands and generational change in news.
1: What's happening, I think, is a real generational divide inside the newsroom and sort of also sort of expectation issue that liberal audiences have with these formidable institutions. So I think um, liberal audiences would like the New York Times as a whole, as an institution to be more openly social justice oriented, right? Because just like writing the words around covering what's happening is not an indication itself of, you know, how the institution as a whole, right, approaches Um, social justice, right? Um, So I think that there's like, why isn't, and you see this like cancel NYT stuff, right? Whenever the New York Times, you know, writes some horribly neutral, you know, uh, headline, right? Um, So, but on the other hand, there's a generation of younger, more diverse journalists that are becoming increasingly powerful at these institutions. Some of them emboldened by unions. Um, the L.A. Times is a really great example of this, um, and they're pushing for more woke journalism and they're pushing for more intellectual honesty within their newsrooms or asking for for those commitments institutionally. So it's it's I think we're at a, a Really interesting inflection point because if newspapers really are only getting subscriptions from one type of of person, and I think that you know, like again, who still believes the mainstream media, right? So it is one type of person, whether that's centrist or um, you know centrist liberal or centrist Democrat. And so you know, are those? And I make I suggest this in the book's conclusion. Maybe you just own it. Maybe these news organizations just need to own the fact that this is their audience and be transparent about their intellectual and political commitments rather than hiding behind objectivity.
0: Hagar says these trends mean news polarization is likely to continue.
2: Based on what we've seen and based on the trends in the news media industry, this is not a dynamic that's going to go away anytime soon. If anything it will only continue to calcify in this polarized sphere Um, and that's because of a couple of things one the shift to digital that is I mean we keep talking about the shift to digital it has happened at this point we have shifted to digital that means there is this more open media sphere less centered on the professional class of journalists and the values of say objectivity and whatever that come with that and also a shift to more analysis, more interpretation, away from event-centered reporting. So instead of saying, this thing happened, and here's when and where, and all of those traditional reporting elements of a story, it's more focused on, well, what does this event mean? What can we learn from this event? It's, uh, you know, what is the take on a particular event as it's happening? And those two things in concert work to increase polarization, I think, because if your focus is on interpretation, then you have to have a perspective, and those perspectives often fall along political line. So to the extent that we are more reliant on the kinds of news that are interpretation-based, we are more reliant on news that is coming from a particular political perspective. There are some positive trends You know, the resurgence of some of the national papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post in recent years is encouraging, but it comes down again to the audience and what is the audience on the whole reading and paying attention to, even if they are subscribing to the New York Times, is that, you know, primary source reporting, those deep investigative stories, is that primarily what they're spending their time consuming?
0: There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, you should check out our previous episodes. Does nationalized media mean the death of local politics? How online media polarizes and encourages voters? How news and social media shape American voters? Did Facebook really polarize and misinform the 2016 electorate? And Can TV News Keep Politics Local? Thanks to Nikki Usher and Nick Hagar for joining me. Please check out News for the Rich Ride in Blue and writer movements between news outlets reflect political polarization in media. And then listen in next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.